Well, I think we're all really aware of greenwashing and green wishing. There's lots of information, good and bad. It's confusing and everybody wants to do the right thing, but can struggle to, to know what that is. We make knee-jerk reactions and, and not uh, really address the, the holistic issues facing the sector. The Kite Mark, though, offers a fantastic opportunity to talk about industry innovation to the consumer. You are listening to Farm to Fork, a series from The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on food packaging. And that's why I wanted to create the sustainable packaging framework. And I'm so, so proud that BSI have got behind it. And I'm confident that this will be a significant step change in how packaging is viewed. That same guy was here the last time we were recording. Was he? Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe. He's a regular. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Where are we, Cindy Parakil? Well, Matthew Charles, we're here again in our usual place at the To Love Tea and Coffee House in London's Battersea, just down the road from Clapham Junction. And we're having our tea and coffee and cake. Yes, we are. Now, this time, I've gone for chocolate and hazelnut praline. Mm. And it looks absolutely amazing. I can't wait to tuck in. How about you, Cindy? Well, this time, I've gone for the red velvet. That does look good too. The cakes are absolutely fantastic here. And we're out having tea and coffee and cake and basing ourselves at the To Love Tea and Coffee House because this is Farm to Fork, our series on the relationship between standards and food. And it's become our location of choice really, hasn't it, Cindy? Our venue and base uh, for this particular series of The Standard Show because it means that we get to record our words and try out all of the cakes. And by the end of the series, who knows, we may have worked our way through the entire range of options. We absolutely must. (laughs) Now, in this series, our menu of episodes is loosely following the food cycle of food innovation, production, packaging, distribution, consumption, and waste management, and featuring some of the key standards involved in each of them. Yes, and just a reminder, in the first episode of this series, where we covered food innovation, we spoke to guests working on enriched crops, cultivated meat and smart farming. And in the second episode where we looked at food production, we went down on the farm, put on our wellies and met some incredibly friendly cows of the stabiliser breed, a bit of where the standard show meets BBC Radio 4's (laughs) farming today. And I visited a sandwich factory to talk not about real sandwiches, though I did get to try some, but about a project called The Digital Sandwich. Now, check out the podcast feed for those particular episodes, and we heartily recommend them. We do. Now, there are no wellies or cows or sandwiches, real or otherwise, in this episode, because we're moving on through the food cycle and looking at food packaging. Yes, and playing us in at the top of the episode was Joe Griffiths, who was Global Food Community Director at BSI, speaking about something called the Sustainable Packaging Kite Mark. Currently being developed by BSI, the ambitions for it, and also about her close personal involvement. Now, in this episode, we have an extended interview with Joe, which was split into three portions. In portion one, we'll hear from Joe about the four main functions of food packaging and a bit of history of food packaging too. And in portion two, Joe tells us about the current problems with packaging, and in particular with plastics, and how standards are helping to address them. And we'll also discover her views on Marmite. And let's just say, Cindy, I was a little disappointed with the answer. I wasn't. (laughs) And in portion three, we'll hear Joe tell us more about that sustainable packaging kite mark. Now, throughout the Farm to Fork series and this episode, we are, of course, exploring the role of standards. So here's Sarah Walton from BSI to tell us more about standards and food packaging. 
Hi, my name is Sarah Walton. I head up standards for the agri-food sector at BSI. As consumer demand for responsibly produced food rises, the sustainability of food packaging itself has become ever more important. However, materials such as plastics do play an important role in preventing food from actually becoming waste. Packaging protects food during long journeys, it helps increase shelf life in the supermarket and at home, and it also helps consumers to see exactly what it is they're buying. So, while the shift away from convenience packaging and single-use plastics is very much needed, it's not a game of absolutes. What's more, behavioural changes from buyers, including more sustainable consumption, people recycling more and opting to buy locally and more seasonally, are still vital. But it's not up to consumers alone to take responsibility for reducing food packaging's impact on the environment. Producers, manufacturers and retailers must also play their part in building a more sustainable food system for everyone and to help tackle climate change through their efforts. So there are many elements to consider here, especially because packaging plays such an important role in helping to reduce food waste in the first place. So it's vital that the food industry uses its packaging materials more sustainably and effectively. And this is where standards come in. For all parts of the food cycle, including packaging, standards provide a way for everyone to agree what good looks like. Before we tuck into our conversation with Joe, a quick reminder that here on The Standards Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. So, Joe Griffiths is Global Food Community Director at BSI. In this first portion of my conversation, I speak to her about why we need food packaging and how the materials used for it have changed over the years, responding to consumer and retailer needs and demands. But I started by asking Joe to tell me more about her BSI role. So my current role is Global Food Community Director and the role of the community uh, is to bring together people to discuss really business critical issues that are facing the sector. And it's important that we do that globally. It's only when the world agrees via ISO, for example, that real progress can be accelerated on on those key issues. And we're looking at issues um, as well as packaging. We're looking at things like um, regenerative agriculture and, and the role that soil carbon plays in that. Uh, we look at things like um, uh, sustainable smallholders or sustainability for smallholders. Um, so it's really a key opportunity to bring global speakers together or global thought leaders together um, to have a chat about what the issues are and potentially what the solutions could be. Now on the on the standards show, Joe, we love a journey. We love a standards journey. So in terms of your standards journey, you know, how and when did it start for you and where are you now? Um, well, I've put, worked in packaging since I got a degree in packaging and print technology, and people are always blown away by the fact that you can get a degree in packaging and print technology. Um, and I view packaging as very much a hidden industry. It's very visible uh, packaging, but the reasons for it, the rationale behind it, the materials, construction, it's all really kind of a secret. Um, and a lot of work goes into packaging selection, testing, and so on, um, particularly for food and some retail products. The interaction between packaging and the product is really crucial too. 
So from being a packaging technologist in, in a couple of different industries across food and personal care, I moved to BRCGS, also known as BRC Global Standards, as the technical manager for the packaging standard. And that was my first introduction into management standards. Um, the scope for that standard is product safety and quality management. And the move to BSI three years ago meant that I could broaden that scope into other areas, crucially the environment. And people always, you know, are very concerned about packaging in terms of the environment. So that's my, my sort of journey so far. Now, to the heart of the issue uh, then, Joe, you know, what, what's the purpose of food packaging? The, the four main functions of packaging for, for, for anything, especially food, is protect, preserve, contain and inform. So what we want to do is protect the, the product from uh, damage. So we don't want bruised apples in the supermarket. We want to buy nice, shiny, uh, uh, unbruised apples. We need to preserve food. So we want, uh, you know, a good example perhaps is, is cans of tomatoes or um, beans. So that's a preservation technique. Uh, contain. So we want to uh, understand how many apples there are in a bag or how many uh, beans there are in a can and informs we want to have the, the ingredients any allergens all of that critical information um, that the consumer needs to make informed decisions about what's in the packaging um, if you've got a piece of packaging that does or, or a material that does one of those then that's that's a piece of packaging if you've got one that does all four of those functions then I think that's a really good um, piece of packaging and I think the key thing with packaging perhaps is that you shouldn't notice it. Um, it should just be part of the experience of, of the product. You know, the, the inter like as, as I mentioned before, the interaction between the packaging and the product should just feel pretty seamless. And I think people understandably get frustrated when you've got packaging that is, is causing a problem rather than um, solving a problem. You mentioned there about about the sort of the current way in which we sort of interact with packaging, but but I'm interested to know, you know, how has how has food packaging changed throughout the years? Well, that's a really interesting question because back in the sort of pre-war era in the early uh, 20th century, food was much more local. We didn't have the supply chains we have now. You know, meat came from a local source, dairy did. Um, we probably only had the vegetables that we could grow. Um, but then post-war, as more women remained in work outside of the home, there became the need then for packaging that made like people's lives easier, made families' lives easier. So things like cling film came along and aluminium foil for domestic use. Supermarkets then started appearing. So we needed packaging that could sit on the shelf. And the packaging was very much about protecting and preserving the products. Those two of the main four functions. Because those products might be on the shelf for a day or so, rather than fresh from behind a counter and wrapped in wax paper or a bag or you know any any kind of well newsprint perhaps. And then I would say that the marketing aspect of packaging started to come into its own in the nineteen sixties and and sort of exploded in the seventies and eighties, um, where we you know you started to see that really strong colourful branding on packages. Uh, and then now packaging is regarded as the silent salesman. We can scan a good length of supermarket shelf in just a second or two. It's amazing that studies have been done, how quickly people scan supermarket shelves. And we're looking for the colour and the shape of a pack we know we want or need. And, and companies work really hard to make sure that they have the consistent colours across their product in every region of the world. So the Coca-Cola Red, for example, is exactly the same no matter what region you buy it in, whether it's produced in Australia or Brazil or Norway, that red will be exactly the same. And the shape of the bottle will be really recognisable. That's a real 
Um, and in the UK, you know, people always use the example of Marmite because you're looking for that brown jar with the yellow, bright yellow lid. Um, you know, we're not necessarily reading what's on the pack. We're looking for that thing we recognise. During that same period, you've got the increase of the high-speed production lines. Um, that transformed the materials we use from wax paper to the myriad pack types we see now. And organisations often innovated behind the scenes. And like I said, packaging is very hidden in terms of what it does and how it functions. But there's a huge amount of innovation in order to create the new pack formats that we see now because they met a need either for the production line or the supply chain. So uh, an example that springs to mind there is the Tetra Pack that you might see your orange juice in, the the, the um, pasteurised orange juice or pasteurised milk or the UHD milk, sorry. So with the Tetra Pack, you've got the couple of layers there. You've got the paper that is easy to print. You've got the aluminium, which provides the important barrier uh, to protect the milk. And then you've got um, plastic then that, that not only sticks those layers together, but also then creates a, an important moisture barrier. So that's, um, that's usually a square. They're called bricks usually. Um, they're super space efficient. And, and you can actually now buy more products in Tetra Packs. Um, things like... Um, canned tomatoes so instead of having the round cans you've got bricks of, of tomatoes and they're so much more space efficient on the shelf and in the supply chain so as a result of that you've got lower emissions you've got all the other um, benefits of having to use less space to transport the same volume of of material the problem of course with tetra pack is that the recycling facilities just aren't as uh, available as they are for metal or, or any of the other um, packaging formats that you'll see. So you see the innovation um, coming through. We see innovative uh, materials that perhaps are biodegradable or compostable. But you've got to think about the end point as well. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to take care of in, in what we're going to talk about next in the, in the Sustainable Packaging Kite Mark, um, that if you understand the end market, then you can actually design the packaging that's more suitable for it. Um, so you perhaps would not want to put biodegradable products in or biodegradable packaging, sorry, into the market in the UK, for example, because we don't have an established uh, waste stream for them. We don't have a biodegradable waste stream uh, unless it can go into the food waste. But even that isn't consistent across all the regions. You know, we all like to complain about, you know, different bin bags, different bins in different counties, different towns across the UK. Um, so there's lots of issues that mean that um, the change in packaging isn't necessarily met by the waste infrastructure. Now you mentioned you mentioned about the the sort of the, the four the four reasons why we we need food packaging, and I wonder if there's a, there's a fifth one because you mentioned marmites. I've got to check with you. Are you are you marmite or not marmite? I'm not marmite. Not marmite. Well, this conversation may not as go as as well as I thought it might. <laughs> why not marmite? Too salty. Too salty. Okay. Well, I'm definitely pro, I'm definitely pro Marmite, but I wonder if there's a if there's a sort of emotional connection there that we have a package. How much is how how is that how, how important is that to us that, that emotional connection we make with the product product because of the packaging? Oh, definitely, because we 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 handle and we come into contact with packaging all day, every day. Uh, every product we buy has got packaging in some way, shape or form. Even at the farmer's market where we think we're package, packaging free, you know, there's there's totes and trays and paper bags. So we have a real emotional connection. Of course, we bring these things into our home as well. We interact with them in the home. 
So, for example, if you buy a new phone, there's the whole experience of unboxing the phone. And YouTube is full of unboxing videos. You know, people really enjoy that, that sensation of opening and gift, almost like a gift experience, a self-gift experience um, of packaging. I, there's definitely an emotional connection there. And, um, you know, we have our favourite brands and the, the, the pack is as, as integrated with that as, as, as anything else. And then looking into perhaps cosmetics, you know, that's a whole experience. You know, the experience of, um, you know, a lipstick and, and the way it, it, um, it opens or closes or, or, or a, a compact, you know, that's all, um, th- those are all packages and the product interacts with the packaging. And, you know, you have those things in your bag, you, 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 um, use them perhaps throughout the day and so it does become part of your uh, your identity perhaps food for thought okay so Gemma and i had discussed the issue of marmite now if you don't know marmite is a savory food spread based on yeast extract invented by the german scientist justus von liebig it's actually made from the byproducts of beer brewing It's a sticky, dark brown paste with a distinctive, salty and powerful flavour. And this distinctive taste is represented in the marketing slogan, Love it or hate it. Now, such is its prominence in British popular culture that Marmite is often used as a metaphor for something that's an acquired taste or something that polarises opinion. Well, for me, there is only one correct opinion here, and that is love it. Okay, Cindy. Where are you on Marmite? Love it or hate it? Hate it. It really just doesn't cut it for what, me. What What don't you like about it? I don't know. The smell, the texture. That's but all, why do you like that's it? That's all the things I love about it. I love <laughs> the weird smell, the weird texture. It's amazing on toast. I mean, it's just incredibly disappointing that Joe and you, and you don't like it. I mean, that's just, I don't know what to say. Let's agree to disagree <laughs> on that one. <laughs> So in, this fir- in the first portion of my conversation with Joe, we talked about the four main functions of food packaging. Protect, preserve, contain and inform. And also that fifth one, that emotional connection we often have with packaging. We also talked a bit about the history and the use of materials in food packaging and how they've changed over the years. Now in this second portion, I started by asking Joe, what is the problem with food packaging? Well, I think the problem with packaging now is that we are we've been occupying the take make dispose model um, and we don't have an adequate disposal infrastructure we know we need to move to a circular economy but that feels really tricky when we know our recycling infrastructure is a little creaky at, at best and we know our waste ends up in southeast asia and we don't want our waste to end up in southeast asia um, and we we know we need to manage our own waste the infrastructure is key, and I think that's what is is really in need of investment. Um, it's not just about sort of bin lorries and and that sort of thing. It's actually the the um, the, the material recycling facilities or MRFs. <laughs> They're often called MRFs. But our current recycling should really be low on the list of of um, priorities with with circularity at the moment because it really doesn't create enough material of high enough quality to be justifiable. What I mean by that is that uh, a lot of material goes into these material recycling facilities and it it's it's what's called downcycled. So it then, you know, goes from being a plastic bottle um, down into perhaps being a piece of street furniture. 
and I think you know at some point we're going to run out of the need of, of street furniture there's going to be enough benches there's going to be enough street lamps that we don't need to downgrade the material and, and and lots of that material is used for things like road building now you know there's there's end uses being developed for that lower quality material what we need to do is embrace the innovation um, of the collection and pro pre-processing of of material in order to um, maintain its quality or we look at things like reuse systems so a lot of reuse systems um, have been used so the classic example i always give is the doorstep milk delivery those glass bottles went round and round and round probably about nine to 15 times i think before they then got crushed uh, and formed back into new milk bottles and that's really what we should be doing is bottle to bottle and i'm starting to see bottle to bottle or you know pack to pack um, recycling innovations come through but not really at scale and so the infrastructure needs to really support that pull for scale if we look at things like the 30 percent recycled plastics tax so if in the uk we've got a tax that came in in april um, that anyone who puts any packaging uh, plastic packaging on the market has to be 30 percent recycled and if it isn't then they pay a tax well a lot of companies have just said well we need to pay the tax we just can't get the material recycled material in order to to meet the requirements so they're actually saying well you know we're going to pay the tax that's what it's going to cost for uh for the interim um and the recycled material that is available is really expensive it's difficult to get hold of really expensive so the tax is actually perhaps more efficient uh, or more um uh, money efficient what do you call it cheaper um at the moment to, to to satisfy that need but when we look at the other materials as well we if you really think about it we're creating containers that can last 500 years for a product that's going to be on the shelf for a month or in the supply chain for a month you know a bag of crisps for example is probably less than i think somebody did some research recently or published that it was only four days between crisps leaving the crisp factory and being eaten you know, as a, a, the UK is a very crisp orientated country. Crisp, um, don't, crisp do not last very long in this household. No. <laughs> so, you know, I think we got sucked into the, you know, we talked about packaging development through the, 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 the late 20th century. I think we got sucked into this kind of additives and preservatives and packaging materials for preservation in areas perhaps that it wasn't needed. Um, like, like bag of crisps they used when i was a kid they used to just be in those plain um plain plastic packs now they're in metallized foil packs or metallized plastic film packs you don't necessarily need that but it's 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 that's where the branding and marketing aspect has come in they, they like the shiny pack it's it's uh, opaque so it you know camouflages any broken crisps which means sales you know there's all sorts of of consequences of 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 packaging um so ultimately <laughs> the real the real problem with packaging is our, our our model of take make dispose we need to move to circularity we need to embrace the innovation to support circularity even when it's a little bit expensive you mentioned that that circularity and you took me back there with the sort of milk bottles and i remember when i was growing up you know that was how we how we consumed milk it was delivered to the house and i do remember vividly the sort of it being introduced on supermarket shelves and i think that it seems a strange concept to get your milk from a shop it just seemed a very mm-hmm. very alien thing and now obviously it's what it's how most people consume consume you know those sorts of products um you mentioned there about plastics i want to come back to plastic because the packaging debate seems to have been focused on plastics hasn't it? it's become pretty polarized either plastics are very very good or it's very very bad and almost demonized now you mentioned there about materials that 
providing uh, packaging for food, which may last 500 years for a product that might last for four or five days. And I mean, I've got my kitchen upstairs. I've got lots of Tupperware, you know, something that was created 50, 60 years ago, and I assume was going to last for another 50, 60, or maybe even mm. 500 years. I just wonder where, you know, in terms of plastics, where is the debate around the use of plastics within food packaging in particular? It's an interesting point because plastics really has been demonised. And, and if you really think about it, plastic is plastic is fantastic. And it's actually one of the materials that's best suited to the circular economy. It's low weight. It takes uh, less heat to transform it. Uh, processing can be um, really, really simple. Um, it, it can be easily cleaned and washed to, you know, to, for a reuse model. So... There's lots of reasons to use plastic, and actually, it's 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 completely necessary within food packaging. We simply would not have food on the shelves that we have all the year round if it wasn't for plastic in the supply chain. Things like um, meats wouldn't last on the on the shelf for you know the, the perhaps five days they're on um, you know in the supply chain or in the in in the home. They, they just wouldn't work. <laughs> um, things like bag salad wouldn't exist. Things like um, ripe avocados. We don't grow avocados in the Northern Hemisphere. And so if we want avocados, we need to accept that there's going to be a bit of plastic involved. Um, so the debate around plastic is really, I think, the, the waste piece, because we've seen the Blue Planet uh, with David Attenborough, and we understand that waste doesn't always get to where it should be waste is uh it's called fugitive uh fugitive materials in industry um those fugitive materials and lots of other sources because tire dust is a huge issue um ghost fishing equipment again huge issue but of course people really resonate with seeing um perhaps a, a you know a soft drinks bottle on the beach in in uh beautiful thailand where it should be you know un- unencumbered sands um they really resonate because they think I, I was using one of those today. So does that mean the the, the bottle that I use today is going to end up in, you know, in a, in a turtle or, you know, stopping a a, ship, a shark from swimming properly? You know, we, we've seen these videos and social media means we, we see them all the time, um, particularly with fishing nets. You know, we see uh, the damage that does to, to populations of, of, of sea, sea creatures. Now, before I ask you about, about, about standards... We nearly fell out over Marmite. So, where are you on avocados? Love an avocado. Love an avocado. Okay, that's good. We're 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 back in the game together again. That's fine. So, you mentioned <laughs> Joe some of the some of the the uh, challenges for the sort of food sector in using packaging to deliver food to the consumer, um, and some of the issues there around plastics in particular. So, what about standards then? You know, what what role do standards play? You know, what are they? What solutions are they providing uh, for the food sector in terms of food packaging? Well, we are seeing the emergence of standards for materials in the context of the environment. So before you'd see a lot of technical standards, so you'll see um, perhaps a specification for what a closure looks like, what a certain type of um, uh, a bottle closure should be. But now, we're, like I say, we're starting to see um, standards that talk about things like supply chain issues for plastics. So an example of that is PAS 510. PAS 510 is about plastic pellet flake and powder. So pa- plastics are distributed globally as I, I liken them to lentils. They're often called noodles. Technically, they're called pellets. Uh, and then you'll also have flake products. So exactly as it sounds, 
um, and then powders. So very, um, very, very small plastics, but not microplastics. They're, they're a technically different item. That PAS is based on Operation Clean Sweep, which has actually been running for about 25 years. It emerged from an organization in the US. And what Operation Clean Sweep does is encourage any organization who's involved in the handling of those materials to be responsible about how they um, how spillages or, or things like that are managed and actually activity to prevent the occurrence of spillages because those pellets, people, I think, think they're really small. Well, I'll just sweep them down the drain. It's fine. No problem. But of course, then they end up in, 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 the, in the ground. They end up in the watercourses. And because they're super small and because they're, um, they're really light and they float really easily, they end up in the ocean. They enter sea creatures. They enter seabirds. And of course, they can't digest these items because they're plastic. They're, they're not designed to be eaten. Then then you end up starving these poor creatures. And then, you know, of course, then we see the result again on social media. Um, that could disrupt the food supply chain because, of course, humans eat fish. So if you've got enough fish um, full of plastic pellets, that's one food source gone. But also, of course, there's, there's a whole food chain within the ocean. So this problem is just going to, you know, go from the smallest creatures right up to the biggest. And some of the other ones really related to environment in, in a much more broad sense are things like ISO 14001. That's environmental management systems. Of course, that's been around for about 15, 20 years now and has really become the the, the high mark of, of how people, how organisations manage their impact on their own locations for processes or, or production things. Then we've got things like circular economy. That's BS 8001. That's not an auditable standard. That's actually a guideline. And people forget that about standards, that they're as much a, a kind of a record of what good practice looks like, best practice, rather than being, you know, a set of principles that have to be met. Then we've got things like energy management, that's ISO 50001, and that's really about managing uh, energy and having, a, having a, a structure in order to make sure that energy is, is managed effectively, because, of course, energy often comes from fossil fuels, as does plastics. Um, and we need to move away from fossil fuel energy. We've got a standard for carbon neutrality. That's PAS 2060. Again, that's a specification so people can actually do the work and prove there's an element of there's there is carbon neutrality in, in their organization for a product or for their own operations. Then we've got um, life cycle greenhouse gas emissions. So again, a study of product or process to determine what the greenhouse gas emissions are. And of course, when everyone's using the same methodology, you can actually do meaningful comparisons. That's why it's so important to use standards like PAS, which, like BS, can become ISO standards. And I actually believe 2050 and 2060 are in the process of becoming ISO standards. They've been adopted. Then we've got life cycle assessment. So there's 14044 and there's 14072. They're slightly different in, in how they can be applied, but both of them are... Um, uh, applicable to do a real meaningful study again with the consistent methodology to understand what the environmental risk factors are for any product or process. There are innumerable standards around CSR and sustainability. In a, I've mentioned, I've, I've barely touched the, the the surface of the number of standards there are, and I always feel like standards are a bit like the App Store. When the App Store first came out, people would you know say, "Oh, there's an app for that." Well, if you've got a problem, there's probably a standard for it. Food for thought. Now, Joe had mentioned avocados. Most avocados are grown in Mexico, 
and have long been part of the Mexican diet, with evidence of avocado consumption going back almost 10,000 years. Back then, of course, humans were simply gathering and eating wild avocados. It's now believed that humans began cultivating them about 5,000 years ago. In the 16th century, Spanish explorers became the first Europeans to eat them. Martin Fernandez de Enseco was the first European to describe avocados in a book he wrote in 1519. By the time of the Spanish conquest, avocados had spread from Mexico through Central America and into parts of South America. The Spanish eventually brought avocados to Europe and it was Irish naturalist Sir Hans Sloane who coined the word avocado in 1696 when he mentioned them in a catalogue of Jamaican plants. He also called them the alligator pear. Avocado, Cindy? Yep, absolutely love avocados. They're just so versatile, sourdough and avocado, avocado and anything as a matter of fact. I just, I just love avocado. <laughs> well, that's good. At least the three of us agree on avocados. We disagree on Marmite, but we agree on avocados. Absolutely. So in portion two of my conversation with Joe, I spoke to her about the current problems with packaging and in particular with plastics and how standards such as ISO 14001 for environmental management, BS 8001 for the circular economy and PAS 2010 are helping organisations to address them. In this final portion, we return to where we started at the top of the episode, and that is the sustainable packaging kite mark. But first, here's a quick guide to the kite mark. The BSI kite mark is a quality mark owned and operated by BSI. It is one of the most recognized symbols of quality and safety and offers true value to consumers, businesses, and procurement practices. It originated as the British Standards Mark in 1903 for use on tramway rails when standardization reduced the number of rail sizes from 75 to 5. Today, there are a whole range of BSI Kite Mark schemes that cover a variety of products and consumer services, from manhole covers to security locks to fire extinguishers to riding helmets, from furniture removals to electrical installation work. Having a BSI kite mark associated with a product or service confirms that it conforms to a particular standard. Each scheme involves a determination of conformity to the relevant standard or specification of the product and an assessment of the management system operated by the supplier. And each BSI kite mark certificate holder is subject to a program of continuing surveillance. This includes routine testing of the product or process or service from the factory or open market and the further visits to assess the continuing compliance of the management system. The sustainable ca packaging kite mark is, is really my um, my gift to the world. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. Sorry, that sounds really pretentious. <laughs> no, no, you, it is, it's your gift. To, you've been working in this industry for a long time. This is fantastic. This is your gift to the world. Tell me about it. Well, I was convinced for a long time that, that the packaging industry is so good at innovating. They they do so many things that are about lightweighting or lightweighting. Um, they do so much in terms of using recycled material. Um, for example, a glass bottle is, is generally, any glass bottle you pick up is generally at least 30% recycled content. Um, same with um, uh, paperboard, any corrugated box you pick up is probably more like 50, 60% 
100% recycled content. And people don't appreciate that because, you know, you know, that's perhaps not top of mind um, when you're buying those things, but it, it becomes a, 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 you know, an issue at some point. Um, I was convinced there was a way that we could help packaging industry and brands say, look, we're doing we're doing loads on increasing the sustainability of of this package. This is how we can tell you about it. And so there's a whole framework of standards, existing standards. So we're using 14001 and 14044. So that's environmental management systems and the life cycle assessment process in order to help organisations either decide which packaging format is the most efficient and most suitable for their supply chain or they can assess their current package and determine if, if determine what the environmental risk factors are. So for a corrugated box, one of the main uh, risk factors is going to be water use. Water is so integral to the, the production of paper. So in, in with that respect, the objectives of the organisation might then focus on how much water they use in order to make that package. You've outlined sort of the broad elements there of the of the of the kite mark. How does that work? You talked about the two key standards there; they're incorporated. But how does a kite mark work here for for a, for a manufacturer or supplier? How does it operate? So there's a couple of ways it can operate depending on where the organisation is in the supply chain. So we've got a model for the packaging producer. So that's the organisation that actually creates a bottle or a cap or a label, and then they send it on to another organisation to be filled. That organisation can do the LCA, the life cycle assessment, and understand what their environmental risk factors are, and then use that to help them um, improve or, or make changes and really identify even perhaps some of the hidden factors, things like perhaps they didn't know that they didn't know where all their raw material came from. That that could be an issue because the the packaging, the, the supply chains can be very complex for some of these materials. They might be using an ad- additive um, for for a, a processing or, or a processing aid within the production of that bottle. So, do that does is is that necessary? Can they remove it? You know, it, it'll highlight all sorts of things. Then the that organisation can then start to use the kite mark as as kind of a unique selling point and, and helps other organisations make sourcing decisions about what packaging they want to buy. So perhaps. A supermarket might mandate to their supply chain, we want you to work towards a sustainable packaging kite mark, which means then their sourcing decisions uh, is much easier in terms of identifying which packages actually meet the retailer or the brand owner's objectives as well. The second model is for the brand owner. So the brand owner then has got perhaps more information or should have more information about the end market for that product. So they know that it's going to be produced perhaps um, or the, the pack will be filled in the UK and is going to be consumed in the UK. So what materials are actually suitable for the UK recycling system or the, the, the waste management infrastructure? So they can make decisions. Do we want to stick with the plastic bottle or do they want to move to a, or, or, or move to a, uh, an aluminium beverage can? You know, there's all sorts of factors that can be um, utilised to make those decisions. And, and some of the secondary packaging factors will make a difference as well. So there's two different ways, um, you know, an organisation can can maintain the kite mark. The valuable thing, I think, for the consumer is that we will be utilising a QR code, a, 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 one of those funny little things you often see now. And I think the pandemic did a favour in terms of highlighting the use of the QR code. That QR code will go to a BSI portal, so a third party independent portal, which will start to describe why that package is sustainable. Because I think within the within the example of a plastic bottle, for example, people might look at it and go, how can a 
how can a plastic bottle be sustainable? This is ridiculous. I know these are bad for the environment. Well, the QR code, the, the, the information contained there will ho- hopefully start to explain because we live in a, in a or perhaps because we are in a, a country that's got an established waste stream for, for this material, that means as long as you recycle it, it'll come back as another bottle. So there's um, messages about perhaps that broader way of educating the average consumer about what's going on in the packaging supply chain. And it's not limited to just perhaps the plastic bottle itself. Of course, the lid is, is just as important because the, the closure, the lid, the, the screw cap is is one of the most littered items on beaches um, or, or in the ocean because they're lighter, they float. You know, the plastic bottle will fill with water and probably sink, whereas the cap will float and become much more of a, a pollution issue. So, the you know, the cap is just as important. The label... Um, there's lots of information that we can we can we can confer and information as well about how the supply chain operates, even if that's relevant. You know, people might be thinking, well, why is this th- this tomato in, in a te- or processed tomato in a tetra pack rather than a can? Why is one more sustainable? Well, the space efficiency um, might be described within the QR code information to to explain, you know, there's 50 percent less emissions with a with a tetra pack. And this is where you can recycle it. And this is how you can recycle it to make sure it, it comes back as yet another Tetra Pak. I'm just thinking as you're talking there about about some sort of the innovation there that's taking place in terms of communicating to the consumer about, about what's happening here with packaging. But to this sort of the first word in the sustainable packaging kite mark here, sustainable. What, what is, how do we define sustainable packaging? Does it exist? Well, I like to be controversial and say there's no such thing as sustainable packaging, which um, often will make people say, well, all of all, the, all that you've just talked about is complete nonsense then. Um, what I mean by that is that packaging only exists because of the product inside it. So I suppose you could extend that along and say, well, perhaps sustainability is, is about not buying products, which I'm not endorsing. Um, we are in a capitalist society, so, you know, economy and all that. Um, but I think in order, it, it frustrates me when people complain about the packaging around an avocado, when the avocado is the problem, not the packaging. Because it's our desire to have products like that we don't grow. We don't grow bananas, we don't grow avocados, we, and we don't grow strawberries in the winter, but we still expect to see them on the supermarket shelves. So it's a little bit frustrating when people again complain about the plastic on a cucumber cucumber's 98 percent water it needs the plastic otherwise within a couple of days in your fridge it'll be inedible and food waste is a far bigger issue than plastic i appreciate that you know we've got an issue with with waste entering the ocean and entering the environment and we we can take action on that but similarly we can take action on food waste. We waste 30% of all the food we produce. In some regions, it's up to 50%. So it's very frustrating when people remove packaging, going, I don't want packaging um, in my home and so on, when they're going to have a negative effect on the food they're about to eat and potentially waste it. I would much rather people throw all of the materials just in their general waste bin and not recycle or not try and recycle rather than waste food. Um, It just feels wrong that there are people struggling to access food safe healthy food and we're con- we're concerned about the plastic wrapper on a cucumber it's you know 
to coin a phrase, first world problems. It um, is. And it's something we're going to be, food waste is something we're going to be talking about at, at, at the end of this series, sort of our, our last part of the food excellent. cycle. So I'm glad you brought it up. But in terms of where are we, where are we with the development of the, of the Kite Mark now? What, what stage are we? We're in pilot phase. It's really exciting. So we're working with a couple of organisations now to work through the application process, which is really helpful for us because this is a very new uh, project for for us as well. Um, so we've got a f- fantastic team working on it within BSI. And like I said, we're working with some clients at the moment to um, to get the work done. So basically, you know, checking their, where they're at with their 14,001, what's happening with their life cycle assessment, what other certifications they have, um, what what the nature of the product is, you know, all of that, that kind of decision tree information behind there. Because depending on the LCA, there's a matrix of standards then sat behind each material. And there's quite a few standards for plastics, as, as we've touched on. Um, so you'll have things like migration standards, because, of course, recycled plastics have, have an issue in contact with food because of the, of the potential for migration. Um, so there's lots of work happening at the moment. We're hoping to, to start to see the, the kite mark on shelves this year. So in terms of it's interesting, then you mentioned there, you mentioned about the two the two core standards, but you're saying there, if I'm understanding correctly, that the the kite mark achieved by a particular organisation will, will vary because of the different type of of schemes and and standards that may be incorporated under under their specific kite mark. Is that right? Yes, and and that flexibility was really important for me because what we're looking for is the most appropriate packaging for the supply chain that it's operating in. So the packaging for um, perhaps an avocado that's coming to the UK will look completely different to the packaging uh, for that avocado being sold in the country it's come from because you need that packaging to support the supply chain. And the packaging for the same item in the UK as Indonesia will be completely different. Um, because Indonesia, you know, doesn't have established waste streams for certain materials, so you, you would not look to put plastic into a um, a country that doesn't have the infrastructure to manage it. Same with um, compostables. Actually, in the UK, uh, only th- three or four percent of the UK population have access to compostable uh, compost at home, and industrialised composting is 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 tiny in the UK. So it doesn't make sense to put a compostable um, solution into the uk for example and the auditor uh through the assessment will will be challenging the decisions made by the organization about what materials are used raw material sourcing um, material management all those sorts of things so it's 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 hopefully bringing that third party um really challenging uh integrity element into um the whole process and we've worked with a couple of different organizations like the cma the competition and markets authority to understand what their guidance is um and 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 really address each point and so they're really happy with how the kite marks look in as well it's really starting to emerge as as something that people really understand and get behind because they understand that it comes from a place of of knowledge and understanding of our packaging and a, a degree of compassion about the challenges that face the sector you mentioned there, Joe, that you'd like you, you anticipate it being seen on supermarket shelves before the end of the year. I'll just ask you a timing question, you know, sort of projecting, you know, five, ten years in the future. Obviously, standards and kite marks, it's it's they're only they're only a value if people use them. Standards only work if, if people are starting using them. So what difference difference will it make or do you hope it will make by people by organizations using this kite mark, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15 years time? Oh, I I'd, I'd love to see it 
used on all sorts of different products in five, ten years' time. Um, I think the real difference it brings is that for the first time, it's taken a very holistic view of packaging, the supply chain, and um, all of the, the elements within those those pieces, bringing together existing standards and potentially new ones. We've identified opportunities for new standards as well within the, in the framework. So I think the impact for consumers is that if they see perhaps a, a product with a kite mark on and understand what that means in the context of that, they'll then start to think critically about, OK, so I'm going to go and buy a cucumber. I want the one with plastic on it because I know that's more sustainable and it means I can, I'm can i going to have that cucumber in my my fridge for longer. Um, and you've got to think about sort of societal changes as well. You know, there's, there's perhaps... Um, not enough accommodation of, of different um, uh, uh, lifestyles, you know, and, and perhaps people who live alone need to have that cucumber around for longer because they don't eat it as quickly as a family of six or four. Um, so there's there's um, all sorts of, of factors that can help then people start to make critical decisions, not critical decisions, but kind of more informed decisions. I think just providing the information for consumers Knowledge really is power. If they can understand the role that packaging plays and how the organisation behind that package and the product, of course, inside it, have made decisions about how to package and, and why they've packaged in a certain way, then then that means that there's perhaps a, a level of understanding which hasn't been there. We do see packaging labelling at the moment, but it tends to be very single items. So I'm thinking about FSC, the Forestry uh, Stewardship Council. Of course, that's just around paper and wood and that there's a responsibility behind that material because it's a renewable resource what we're doing here is encompassing things like that encompassing good practice around managing raw materials for the other material for the other uh, uh, typical packaging materials as well um, and wrapping it all up and saying look this is this is a the most sustainable it is that it can be now and then also this is what the organization is doing as well to continually improve on the environment, environmental profile of that pack. So, Joe, if you were to sort of sum all this up, you know, all the things we talked about today, what would you say? Well, I think we're all really aware of greenwashing and greenwashing. There's lots of information, good and bad. It's confusing and everybody wants to do the right thing, but can struggle to, to know what that is. We make knee-jerk reactions and, and not uh, really address the, the holistic issues facing the sector. The kite mark, though, offers a fantastic opportunity to talk about industry innovation to the consumer and that's why I wanted to create the sustainable packaging framework and I'm so so proud that BSI have got behind it and I'm confident that this will be a significant step change in how packaging is viewed. So in this episode we have gone from the functions of food packaging, explored a little bit of history and then looked at some of the standards involved and also talked about the new sustainable packaging kite mark. And it was lovely to hear about Joe's personal connection to it, wasn't it, Cindy? Yes, indeed. And we should say thank you to Joe Griffiths and also to Sarah Walton for their contributions to this episode. And we've also discovered that both you and Joe are completely wrong about Marmite. Marmite? Like, really? What is there to like? (laughs) Everything to like about Marmite. Now, we've disagreed on that, but we do agree about avocados. Absolutely. (laughs) So... That's food packaging, and in the next episode of this series, we'll be looking at food distribution. So, Matthew, we should probably move things on from here, then. Very good. Right, are you going to share a bit of that cake this time? Yeah, go on, then. Let's try this. Mm. Eating cakes on podcasts. That is really good. That is really good. (laughs) Can I try a bit of yours? No chance. What?
Come on! <laughs> now you know what it feels like. That's not fair. You have been listening to Farm to Fork, the relationship between standards and food, a series from The Standard Show. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production. 